This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Two guests this week, uh, two excellent guests. First up, the Hall of Fame college basketball coach, Muffet McGraw. If, uh, even if you're not a women's basketball uh, watcher or fan, you've probably heard of Muffet McGraw. She, um, she coached Notre Dame from 1987 to 2020, led her team to nine Final Fours, uh, seven championship game appearances, two national titles, and just a crazy amount of wins. One of the great college basketball coaches of her day. Um, ESPN recently announced she is joining the company to be a studio analyst for the ACC Network. So we get into um, that transition, why she says she will never coach again, Um, her uh, relationship, current relationship with Notre Dame, the challenges of being in uh, broadcasting. Muffet's also teaching at the Mendoza College of Business. So Muffet McGraw is always interesting, and and we had a really good conversation on uh, where she is in her life. Muffet McGraw is followed by the soccer journalist Grant Wall, of course, former colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated. He has his own podcast uh, on soccer, but uh, he's here to talk about a new narrative podcast that he's narrating and has reported on Freddie Adu. It is called, um, let me make sure I have this correctly, uh, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. It's a seven-part series on Freddie Adu and um, and what happened to him. Uh, at one point, uh, you know, maybe the... Uh, um, the greatest 14-year-old soccer player to ever exist in the United States, but um, did not uh, end up sort of uh, um, fulfilling whatever those uh, expectations were. And so Grant uh, has long thought about um, Adu. He wrote a cover story for Sports Illustrated on Adu, and it's uh, it's a pretty interesting, introspective story between a journalist and uh, and a soccer player. And Freddie Adu now at age 31 um, about to play in, uh, in a lower division in Sweden. So interesting story. So Muffet McGraw to start, Grant Wall to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, you know, Muffet McGraw doesn't really need a big introduction. I'll give her one anyway. She, um, she was the head women's basketball coach at Notre Dame from 1987 to 2020, uh, her resume is absurd. Uh, nine Final Fours, seven championship game appearances, two national championships, uh, a crazy amount of wins. The reason she is on this podcast, though, is last month ESPN announced that she will join that company as a studio analyst for the ACC Network. As someone who uh, has interviewed Muffet McGraw many times when I worked at Sports Illustrated as a women's basketball writer. It's great to see now she's she's flipped to the other side, and now she's a media member. And I'm pleased to be joined by Muffet McGraw. Muffet, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. It's so nice to be on the other side. I think they used to call it the dark side, but I'm finding it very bright. Yeah, Muffet, just for the record, I will not be coaching uh, at a major <laughs> college like you. I'm not going to flip and do the opposite as as you did, just so you know. 
apparently. No one's hiring me is the reason. All right. So here's my, here's obviously sort of the initial question is, you know, leaving Notre Dame, you obviously um, had a lot of options to to do a lot of different things. I know you taught for a little bit and I want to get into that, but wh- how, wh- why did you decide to do this? What, why did the decision to, um, to become a studio analyst, even if it's not uh, full-time every day, it, it is a commitment and it is a different life. So why did the decision to do it? You know, it really is. It's a great way to stay connected to the game. And when I first retired, I thought that I wanted to really distance myself from the and really go in a completely new direction, which is why I started teaching. And then when the opportunity came up, I thought, wow, this, this would be really fun. I would have a great time in the studio watching games, which I've always, of course, loved the game. So to watch it from a little different perspective, I think probably always watch it as a coach. You know, I've never been somebody that's uh, kind of the cheerleader, emotional person. I'm more analytical. So it seemed like it was a great fit and, and kind of an opportunity to explore some new things after coaching for 40 years. And I wanted to try to get some some different things in my life. And I think this is a great way to, to just make the entry into a different start. How did it come about, Muffet? Did you reach out to ESPN or did someone at ESPN reach out to you? No, Carol Stiff had called me shortly after I retired and said, you'll probably be hearing from us, you know, in the next couple of months. And, um, you know, I, I thought, well, it would be interesting. I'll see. I'm not sure. And then traveling right now, you know, how's it all going to look? And so when the call came in probably about a month ago, I thought, you know what? I think I'm ready to do it. Uh, there was no negotiation. They said, well, would you be interested? And I said, yes, <laughs> Let's move on it. I don't. I don't need to think about it too much longer. The um, you know, the obviously, co- sort of COVID has changed things when it comes to travel. But your job is a studio job as opposed to a a game analyst job. And so, for you, what was the attraction to being a studio analyst, which means you can obviously talk about multiple teams, you can talk about the sport overall, versus being a game analyst, which obviously is very uh, tethered to whatever game you're focused on at that moment. Yeah, I like the idea of looking at the game, you know, looking nationally at the big picture, looking at the ACC in particular with all the coaches and all the the really good teams that we have. So I really, and I told them right up front, I don't want to do games. I'm not interested in watching and and talking about the games. And honestly, I think it's a lot harder. You know, I think those people do a tremendous job to fill in uh, with all the the talking that they have to do. And I'm really, I'm more of a short answer and get right to the point. So I'm not sure I would have been very good at that. Hmm. The, um, was the, um, was the idea of being part of the ACC network, which obviously focuses on the ACC teams more attractive for you than to be sort of a studio analyst, like, um, you know, what Andy Landers does or sometimes what Rebecca Lobo does when she's not in the studio where those, those guys sort of talk about, uh, all the different conferences. I think it's a great place to start, I think, because I have the familiarity with the ACC. So to be able to look at those teams whose coaches I know, whose players I know, that that seemed like a good first step. I, I would love to do some more national things. I think certainly the national picture is, is exciting and interesting. Um, but I think this is a really good place to begin. So, Muffet, how will it work? Will you um, will you be doing it virtually from your house? Will you be going to a studio somewhere? Like, what's the logistics of this for you? I'll be at home. I've got a little studio set up here. And, and I, of course, when I cleaned out my office, I put all my stuff in the den. I was a little worried about that at first. And they said, no, that's not going to be a problem. But there is a, a lot of 
a lot of stuff up there. So um, it's nice. The ESPN sent the camera and some uh, lights and things, and we've got it all set up. Oh, wow. McGraw Television. I love it. At your uh, at your home. Yeah. Um, so do you – so this so this is interesting to me So because obviously a lot of broadcasters are doing this, but they have experience in it. Will anybody be in your house when you're doing it, like a uh, – like almost like an adjunct producer who comes in to cue you and stuff, or are you literally sort of solo on your own, you know, turn turn whatever camera has to be turned on and – Knock on wood, everything you hope works. Well, my husband just got a new job, and he is the lighting and the sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he will be very busy. Uh, and, then, of course, I have somebody in my ear telling me, you know, what to do and what right. not to do. But, um, yeah, it was it was really – I was very nervous. We had media day last week, and I was nervous that, you know, things wouldn't be bright enough or however it was going to go. Um, you know, the Internet goes out, and suddenly, I, you know, I'm – not talking to anyone. Um, so a lot, a lot of worries. I think that everybody has now that we're all zooming everywhere. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to Matt on his, 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 his second <laughs> yeah. career there is, uh, for him. Um, all right. So, you know, obviously one of the things um, that you'll be asked about, and obviously you've had to think about is, and this, this happens with a lot of former coaches who then go into television, you know, you, you're tied to Notre Dame, um, it's, it's, you know, it is your school. I think he's, I imagine you still live in South Bend. I would be stunned if you've actually moved from there at this point. No. <laughs> um, so you, 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 you're the, the person who is now coaching Notre Dame, um, coach Ivy is your, uh, former player. She's your former assistant. So you're very tied to this program. You're very connected to this program at the same time in theory, theoretically, um, you're going to be asked to sort of be objective about Notre Dame, or at least if, if criticism is warranted on something that's going on to offer said criticism, um, I'm sure you knowing you because you're very analytical, you've thought about this. Like how, how do you think you will approach talking about Notre Dame? Um, you know, at, at like sort of, uh, a, a step away from the program. How do you separate given you've been, you, you've been part of Notre Dame for so long. How do you, how can you separate yourself sort of as a broadcaster from talking about a place that you were so connected to? Well, that's a great question because I think it is going to be difficult. In fact, at media day, I found myself saying our and we, when I was talking about Notre Dame. Right. And so I've got to work on the pronouns. And I, I think that it's, it's not going to be too difficult to be able to be objective during a game. Um, I don't think I would ever get critical of anyone in the league. So I'm, I'm going to try to try to maintain that objectivity, but it's going to be hard. Obviously, Neil is somebody that I've mentored and kind of lived for this day that she would succeed me. So uh, I really want her to succeed. And I, I think it's going to be, uh, so I will definitely be cheering for them quietly. Uh, but hopefully when I get on the air, I can be a little more objective. But I'm sure I'll hear about it if I'm not. I read um, that you reached out to um, Andy Landers and Seth Greenberg. These are former coaches, of course, uh, who have made their way into broadcasting. Um, I would imagine, sort of, to talk about the transition and maybe even some of the questions that you had, like for Andy Landers, you know, how do you, how have you dealt with talking about Georgia when Georgia becomes part of the conversation? What, what, one, what did those two coaches tell you? And then, secondly, have you reached out to anyone else in broadcasting to um, just get some thoughts on how to approach this? Well, they were both terrific, and they both kind of came at it from a little different angle. And Andy was the one that said, like, he doesn't try to get critical of, of the coaches. And he really – he was able to maintain the distance from Georgia. I think, it, like, he had a, a really objective look at things. Um, he gave me some great advice. I, you know, just talking about how 
you know, don't get caught up in the weeds of knowing all the stats and, you know, really diving deep and, you know, knowing all their offenses and things when you're trying to talk big picture and to just kind of have fun with it. That was his big message was have fun with it. And, you know, you know me, so, you know, fun is not like my middle name. I mean, I'm not not somebody that I would think (laughs) fun is going to come up. Um, So just try to, you know, really enjoy the experience. And then Seth is very similar. You know, don't don't get caught up. He does watch a lot of film. Of course, he has to do the entire country. You know, I've only got the 15 right. ACC teams. So, um, and both of them said, you're going to over-prepare because that's how we do it. As we're coaches, we just go into it over-prepared. So that made me feel a little better um, knowing that I wasn't just being paranoid. Uh, but yeah, I think I think both of them just said, you know, keep watching other people and keep talking to other people, but be yourself. Muffet, how how are you approaching this in terms of something that's not just a um, a one off? Um, you'll you'll obviously go through the experience. You'll see pretty quickly, I think, if you like it or not. But um, like, would you be open to doing this on a more full time, longer basis, or for you, really, is it just like you know one? one I'm I'm taking like one college basketball season. I'll see how it is, and then I'll make my sort of any kind of longer thoughts literally after the college basketball season. Yeah, I'm taking it one as one year of a look and and what a year, right? What a year to be looking. Who knows how yeah. this year is going to turn out for everyone, but certainly the chance to be at home and do this is much more appealing right now, e- even without COVID. The, the fact of traveling constantly was something I was trying to get away from when I retired. So I think this this staying at home and then easing into it will give me a pretty good idea of whether I want to continue it next year, if they want me back. One of the things, I mean, I think inevitably, um, getting a chance to talk to you, I have to sort of ask about this, but I, I think people, when they saw your announcement, were really, really surprised. And I think they were surprised just given the kind of success that that you had over like the last 10, 15 years of your coaching career that you would, you know, you would really decide to just walk away. Um, so I'll just ask bluntly, like, how do you know the coaching bug will not come back? Like, how do you know for sure that you're done here? Oh, I know. I know for sure. Because, you know, just the even with what was going on, obviously, but going through the summer and talking to people about how they're, you know, they're recruiting and how, how this is going and they're making phone calls and then, practice began and I never had that feeling of regret that I'm going to miss this. And I think it's been a different year, obviously. So it's not the same kind of practice. I mean, there's been a lot more hoops to jump through and hurdles to cross, but I I really feel good about it. And and it's funny that I read a couple of things. People said, I was shocked. And I think shocked because one, it didn't get out, you know, it didn't get out in advance. And this was in the works since uh, I mean, I met my AD probably in February and said, um, you know, I, I told him at the beginning of the year, I told him the year before. I mean, I'd, I've been thinking about it. So, you know, to us, it was like, oh, you're finally pulling the trigger. <laughs> you know, you've been talking about it for years. So, and I think coming off of, uh, you know, two great years with the championship and then back to the final, you know, I've, I kind of in my mind thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to, to go out with a win um, and then, of course, we lost in the final. Uh, but coming back to that last year was just to make sure, you know, you want to be sure. One of the things that um, I, I know you think about because you're um, you've always been a thoughtful person. Uh, I'm not just saying that because you're on this podcast. I, I mean, I've said that before, <laughs> I've written that before. The, um, uh, the you know, the, the, the reality is when you have a figure such as yourself who is still close to the university, including in proximity. Um, and even though 
Neil Ivy is someone who is a friend of yours and you've been a mentor to her. The fact is like you can overshadow like that program if you are around a lot because because you know, people will always sort of make these inevitable comparisons. So I wonder just from your perspective, like how do you navigate between being there for uh, Neil Ivy, being there if she needs you to be part of the program, but at the same time, like, you know what I'm saying? Like not being necessarily a shadow over the program so she could create her own program and create her own journey. Yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about that and people would say like, are you going to be going to the games? And you know, first I was like, well, of course I'm going to be going to the games. But then I thought, well, but where will I fit? You know, because I don't want to be, <laughs> right. you know, up front. So, I, you know, there's a, we have like a, a club upstairs. You know, you can kind of look down and not, not a lot of people. Which I think I'll be up in Club Namoli watching the games. I have not been to practice. I have not even been in the building. Um, so I'm really trying to let her just find her own way. And we certainly talk quite a bit. You know, we'll we'll talk um I'm at her, you know, on speed dial anytime she needs me. But I really want her to create her own vision. And it's kind of good because, you know, we got this great freshman class, five new players coming in. Yeah. So you know, it was a, a kind of a great time to step away and let her start over. The um, One of the new coaches in the ACC is Kara Lawson, who, gets the Duke, who got the Duke job. Uh, Kara Lawson was a, uh, a phenomenal broadcaster, um, even going back and you know this to her days at Tennessee, she was always somebody like, <laughs> like sort of in terms of intelligence was about 30 years, like ahead of her time. It was like a 50 year old, basically in a 19 <laughs> year old woman's body. So it has no surprise to see her success. Obviously she went to the Celtics too. It must've been interesting for you, right? I think you, you, you interviewed her. So like <laughs> how ironic that you end up <laughs> interviewing Kara Lawson, Kara Lawson, now a coach. You were broadcasting. Well, the funny thing was, I talked to her right after she got the job um, because she hired one of my former assistants. And I said, wouldn't it be funny if I ended up, you know, doing interviews? And, you know, then it happened. And then I did get to interview and I was thinking, well, I really want to grill her. I mean, I want to really get her. But she actually was one of the nicer interviews that I've ever had. So I, I thought I went easy on her this time. Yeah, the thing about Kara, by the way, is you ask her a question, you're getting like a good five minute, exactly. like really intellectually sound <laughs> argument. It's hard to like, it's hard to beat her. She's a good chess player. Yeah, what a great hire for Duke. I'm, I'm really, that was a really good hire. Yeah, that they will be successful uh, because Kara Lawson is successful. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, a couple more here. Um, when, when you were going to be on the podcast, I, I wanted to ask you this because I, I think you're um, – I'd just be curious how you approach this. Earlier this month, actually, I should say earlier this week, actually, technically, or last week, the Ivy League announced that it had canceled all winter sports, including men's and women's basketball, for the 2021 season. A unanimous decision reached by the Ivy League. I understand the Ivy League is very different than the ACC or the SEC. Um, just athletics there are different. But that, that struck me as a very, very interesting decision, Muffin. And I wonder... Um, as someone who coached at the highest level at a big time conference, um, 
how do you just how do you look overall at these players playing amid COVID? And 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 within relation to that, what did you think of the Ivy League's decision to just basically say, you know what, we're not doing it this year? Well, I think the Ivies made the the best decision for them, but I think it was a bit of a wake up call for everybody else. I think that we got to the point where we said games are going to start around Thanksgiving, and and everybody was all in. You know, let's get going. But things have gotten worse since that decision was made. What do we have? Fifteen football games canceled this past weekend. I mean, and they're an outdoor sport. So we we are, I, I think, starting to look and say, you know, we've pushed recruiting back. It's been a dead period. We haven't had anybody on campus. And now suddenly we're going to be traveling and we're going to be playing games and we're not going to be wearing masks. We're inside. We're, you know, close contact. So I think it's something that we need to continue to consider. And, you know, I know some people are just talking about, can we just push the season back till January? You know, the vaccine, will it be available later? Is that the best thing for everybody? It's so hard to decide. And I think that every every state is now looking at locking things up a little bit more. What is that going to mean when you're trying to travel into a state to play? I don't know. I think that we have to remain flexible and look and see what's going to happen when a team, you know, constantly has games, you know, oh, this team's quarantined, we can't play this game or that game. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope we can get through the season. But, I, I mean, the safety and well-being of the players and coaches are of primary importance. What was it like being part of last March when um, when the decision basically came down that uh, um, women's basketball was going to stop? It may have been different for you than, obviously, let's say at um, – at Oregon, but you know, well, I think that you know, just obviously, just speaking for myself, well, I think the decision was correct and it was the right call. I mean, if you have any kind of humanity, you have to feel for like the players, uh, particularly at like in Oregon or South Carolina, who trained all year, trained all their lives, had a real shot to win a title, and then you know, just a couple of weeks before the Final Four, that gets pulled away. Yeah, you know, I have to say we we did celebrate a bit when the, when the NCAA canceled the tournament with of coming out of our position of you know having been to so many straight NCAA tournaments and not going last year, um, a, a kind of a moment of like oh my god like that that couldn't have been any better, and then you know then thinking about it because I had a coach um, former player coaching at Marquette. And that would have been her first NCAA tournament. And I looked around the country and, oh, darn, that team, that would have been their first. So I I think I felt more for those programs than I did for, you know, Oregon was in the Final Four the year before. South Carolina has been to the Final Four. They won the national championship. I kind kind of dismissed the top end and really was more looking at, oh, these teams that have worked so hard to bring their programs back to finally get to the tournament, and now there's no tournament. You Since retiring from coaching, you taught a sports business leadership class at Notre Dame, and on election day, you worked as a poll worker. Um, I wonder, for both of those things, um, how did you feel about both of those experiences? I love teaching. I absolutely love it. I love being in the classroom, and my class is about half athletes. I've got a lot of grad students in there as well, um, so a lot of people have had familiarity with being on teams. So we had some really good discussions. It was hard because I had to start from scratch and make the syllabus and do everything. I thought somebody was going to hand me the plan. Uh, So, you know, I I was really finding my way and I definitely, it was a rookie season for sure. I I did a lot of things that I would do differently next semester uh, when I go back, but I, I loved it. I love that feeling of, you know, you're talking about 
leadership, you're talking about teamwork, you're talking about culture, all the things that I've really done for the last 40 years. So I felt like I finally had a chance to, to do a little more, you know, off the court, uh, which, which I really enjoyed. And working at the polls, I just thought it was so important with this election. I, I wanted to do anything I could. We were trying to get Notre Dame to be a polling site, and they ended up not needing it. But um, to be able to go out and work a it was like a 14-hour shift. I mean, I, I, I thought I was going to be working from, you know, noon to 5 and coming in in a shift. And, they, you know, we got there at 5 a.m. and left at 7 p.m. So it was a long day, but it was something that I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I loved uh, being around all the people coming in. The crowd was tremendous. Uh, Indiana not known for being one of the best states and getting out to the polls. And we set some records here. So, you know, I was excited about that. You um, the, just so I'm right about this, it, the class, the le- sports leadership classes in the Mendoza College of Business. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you'll teach that again in the spring. Yeah, I will. So I adjusted my schedule so I could, uh, you know, if I had to travel for the ACC network, um, I would be able to do that. Are you uh, like as a professor? Do you consider yourself a tough grader? <laughs> I I I'm not an easy A. But I, I'm probably an easy B. So I, you know, it's funny. Th- these are great students, and they their projects are terrific. And I, I really, I had a tough time with the grading. Um, but we, we tried. I didn't, I didn't give out a lot of A's. So I think that's good. Oof, I can imagine like somebody not happy getting a B from Muffet McGraw, <laughs> Professor McGraw in that class. That was hard though. I said, "Don't call me Professor, okay?" I was like, "Just call me Coach," because I'm not going to answer to Professor yet. Yeah, it's it, that's a that's a that, that's a tricky one. Um, all right, the last topic I want to get into is I, I um, upon your retirement. And this is obviously something you you talked about before. You said um, you wanted to promote women's equality and speak on behalf of all women across the country. And then you said something that was that sort of struck me. And when I remember reading that quote, you said you find that you've turned into a real activist and that you're enjoying that. So I wondered, obviously, in addition to your television work. Um, what kind of things are you interested in doing over the next couple of years that um, that might revolve around activism or things that are existing in the community? I know one of the things you talked about in terms of women's equality was, you know, you had come to a point where you said you would only hire um, uh, women coaches for the game. But, you know, what, what would you like to sort of do heading forward where maybe, you know, I always thought maybe politics could be something you might be interested in. But but what for in terms of activism, where do you think that's going to go? You know, it's funny when I see what's going on, even with the election in Philly, when uh, all the people came out and were dancing in the street and celebrating and, you know, all these protest marches. And I I just that's something that I really want to do more of. And I never had time before. Um, So trying to just get out and be visible in the community. And I I, I thought about politics. I talked to someone about that, but I I don't think that's the avenue I want to pursue. I want to continue with the community service part of things, but also just doing things, standing up for women. And and that's in small ways. Um, You know, I'm doing a lot of speaking to different groups, uh, just trying to motivate and, and inspire women. And certainly having a female VP inspires us all. And looking at uh, Major League Baseball, hiring a female GM for the first time um, for my Marlins. So, you know, it's coming. It's coming. And I just think that we need to do so much more. So anywhere I can lead, lend my voice is really pretty much where I want to go. You, um, 
I want to ask you about this. And obviously, uh, and by the way, I should have mentioned that Muffet is a is a Philly person, so that uh, Philadelphia, she has Philadelphia ties before she headed to um, South Bend. One of the things um, that we saw Muffet this year, and we've seen this now for you know nearly a decade, but it really was apparent this year um, how um, politically active WNBA players have been, including some of your um, former players at Notre Dame. Uh, you know, I, I follow Skylar Diggins Smith on, uh, on Twitter and she's very active or she has been very active politically in terms of her beliefs and, uh, you know, even her support when it comes to the upcoming, uh, two Georgia Senate races. Um, I wonder what you think of, you know, you, 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 you have a lot of players who graduated from your program who are socially conscious, uh, in the WNBA and, and we've seen that. And I wonder from your perspective, what you think of that? Well, I'm proud of them. Uh, back in 2014, we wore shirts before a game that said, I can't breathe. And that was you know, six years ago. We, we started the fight. Yeah. And I remember going around the room in the locker room and just saying, like, what, what do you want? What would you fight for? What, what's important to you? Because we want to do more and we want to use our voice to do that, to use our platform. Uh, Brianna Turner has really stepped up and been very active. Yeah. Um, Arike, I mean, really all of them, I think, are finally, especially African-American women. I mean, they just, they need, they need to do that because they're role models and they have to embrace that. So I, I'm really proud of them when I see them speaking out for what they believe in. Did you ever have a, did you ever have a sit down with Pete Buttigieg, who is um, the former mayor of, uh, of uh, South Bend just on politics. And the reason I asked that is because, um, you know, he's, he was in your neighborhood. I know you know him. And then obviously he ran for president and has since become a, a national figure. And I wonder if you guys have ever just sat down and exchanged ideas. Well, you know, it's funny because when I started getting a little more involved locally and trying to find out about, can we get Notre Dame as a polling place? I texted him. He called me right back. And so we had a, a great phone conversation He's also teaching at Notre Dame. We talked a little bit about first-year teachers. Um, but, you know, how, wow. how do we get things moving here? Um, we're, uh, you know, in a state that's, you know, in the 40s, 45, 46, in, in terms of how we get ranked where people vote. So we, we did talk a lot about – he gave me some direction on where I should look. Um, and that was before – and now he's – I feel like he's, he's going to get a cabinet spot. I mean, I'm, like, just waiting to see – um, yeah. if, if Biden's going to make him something in the administration because he's done so much. So, yeah, we're really proud of what he's done here in town. Muffet, um, I have no doubt that uh, that this will be successful uh, for you, although I, I think uh, I imagine there's other things that you're going to do over the next couple of years, uh, including activism and, and, and things for women's equality that uh, um, that are going to serve notice to people. Uh, I've said this before. I always enjoyed covering you. You were a total straight shooter. Um, quite frankly, perhaps sometimes to your detriment, but I always appreciate that regardless. Uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I just had great respect for your program. You, I mean, just to be blunt, you gave such a shit about your players and women's basketball. And I can't, uh, I can't have more respect, uh, for you on that. Thanks so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast. Well, thank you, Richard. I always enjoy talking with you too. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
All right, as I said at the top, Grant Wall, is uh, he was a longtime colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated. He's a well-known soccer journalist, and he's on this week. Uh, I should mention as uh, here as well that he hosts the Football with Grant Wall podcast. Check that out. Go to iTunes, et cetera, to find that. But he's here this week because he is debuting a seven-part series on the American soccer player Freddie Adu. The narrative podcast is called American Prodigy. The Freddie Adu story, and it really has great promise because Freddie Adu is not someone who has um, has talked about his pretty remarkable athletic life, uh, or he hasn't talked about it in a long time. But he will on this new podcast, uh, reported and narrated by Grant Wall, who joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Grant, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Richard? I'm good. All right, so Grant, give so people who are listening, give people the sell on what is this new narrative podcast about Freddie Adu. Yeah, I mean, this is a story I've wanted to do for a few years, actually. And it's a project that required a lot of time, which I had this summer. So I spent about three, four months on it. And I've always been fascinated by our cultural obsession, I think, with sports prodigies, you know, this potential for young athletic genius. And... I did our first story, a uh, cover story at Sports Illustrated on LeBron James back in 2002, and that one held up pretty well, and LeBron somehow has been better than the hype, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. But a year after that LeBron story in 2002, because I was doing both basketball and soccer at Sports Illustrated at the time, I started writing about Freddie Adu, this 13-year-old who was about to turn pro and was viewed as potentially the savior of American soccer and potentially the first male U.S. soccer superstar. And so I followed him around. I went to the 2003 Under-17 World Cup in Finland where he had a hat trick in his first game. And there was this bidding war to sign him uh, by MLS and by top clubs in Europe. And... This kid was viewed as the real thing. And obviously, Freddie didn't make it. And so I'm fascinated by the factors that went into LeBron making it as a phenom. And then this phenom, Freddie Adu, who didn't make it and wanting to tell that story and talk to a couple dozen people around Freddie and Freddie himself. All right. So let's sort of start with this. How do you, if you decide that you want to do kind of an in-depth, uh, multi-episode podcast on Freddie Adu. And this is a seven-part series. Each uh, episode will be released. Each new episode will be, released, will be released every Tuesday. Like, what's the process, Grant? Do you, do, you, do you get a long list of people, like, potentially who you want to talk to and then just start calling them? Are they receptive to talking about Freddie? How does it work? Well, first, I partnered up with Blue Wire Podcasts, which has been extremely supportive in uh, you know, the whole way through uh, here. And uh, and I ended up working with a guy named Harry Swartout as the producer, who is the same guy I worked with at Sports Illustrated last year when we did a multi-episode podcast series on the origin story of the U.S. women's national team and the FIFA Women's World Cup tournament. And so we had that experience together of doing a really ambitious 30 for 30 style podcast series. And that worked out really well. 
last year, right before the Women's World Cup, got a really good response. So we had that experience behind us, which helped guide how this Freddie Adu series went. So I made a list of a couple dozen people I wanted to do interviews with, including Freddie Adu. But here's what's interesting is Freddie said no at first. And the fact is that Freddie has never done an interview looking granularly at the course of his career, which is reasonable, you know? No one, you know, no one's gonna force him to do that. And there's some things there that are pretty cool to talk about and some things that probably aren't very much fun for Freddie to talk about. And so what was interesting was I had the support of Blue Wire to go ahead and do the series anyway, even if we didn't get Freddie to do. And so over the next six weeks, I ended up interviewing these two dozen people and not all of them might've said yes to doing interviews about Freddie Adu either, but they did. And, and that comes from, I guess, the relationships I've developed over the last 20 years. But people who are very well-known, like Landon Donovan, Alexi Lawless, Eric Winalda, uh, people who might be less well-known, like Arnold Tarzi, Freddie's first youth coach, his agent, Richard Motzkin, um, it, just a lot of different people, people who were with DC United when Freddie was a 14-year-old making his debut as a pro athlete in 2004. And after about two months of doing this, Freddie Adu actually contacted me and said he was, he was interested in speaking, that some people close to him had convinced him to change his mind. And that made me really happy because that was my hope all along. And I appreciate the support from Blue Wire, like go ahead and do it anyway, even if you don't get Freddie, because that increased the chances of getting Freddie and earning that by doing journalism. Because he clearly had talked to people who had talked to me. And, and these had been interviews, all these two dozen interviews, anywhere from an hour to two hours each. And so they realized that I was trying to do the defining story of Freddie Adu. And ended up talking to Freddie for 90 minutes, was able to address all sorts of topics I've been wanting to talk about with him for years. And we're gonna do one more actually, because he just signed a pro contract with a team in Sweden to start back, back up playing after two years of actually not even playing professionally. And so that's gonna actually be the final seventh episode. All right. So a couple things here. Um, I, I, I want to get to what Freddie had to say to you, but l let's sort of do something uh, writ large. Why, why did it? Why did Freddie not turn into what people thought he would be? What Sports Illustrated sort of suggested he might be. Why, why did he not turn into, um, you know, this this goal scoring like self made self you know homegrown prodigy what why why did he not you know why did he not turn into lebron or kevin garnett in his sport i mean this was one of the central topics i pursued in all of my interviews including with freddie and um it's it's kind of crazy when you go back to 2004 and the stories i wrote for si back then I was there when Freddie did a, an ad with Pele for the 2004 MLS season. It was their entire national ad campaign. Freddie was the highest paid player in MLS at age 14. Um, 
you know, I interviewed Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike, the founder of Nike back then. And he told me that he thought Freddie could be bigger than LeBron, bigger than Tiger Woods, bigger than Michael Jordan had been for their sports because he thought that Freddie could take soccer to an entirely new level in the United States. And then Phil Knight was like, I don't want to be putting any pressure on the kid. Well, you kind of just did, man. <laughs> and so that pressure, Freddie said, did affect him. And he was thinking less about the soccer because he was doing so much promotional stuff. And so he stopped working as hard. And, you know, Freddie, I wanted to see what kind of self-introspection he had. And he did say that he, he could have worked harder in his career. And he did say that the attention and the money affected him. And so that was part of it. And potentially too, he was starting an MLS and at the time he was the biggest story in the history of the league and he was being promoted as such. And he was just 14, he hadn't played a professional game yet. And so I think adults didn't necessarily set him up to succeed either. And when Freddie did eventually go to Europe and signed with Benfica in 2007, he was joining that team with some very good players who turned out well, like Angel Di Maria, David Luiz, and Freddie figured to follow that path to the biggest clubs in Europe, and he didn't. He ended up going out on loan a bunch of times to different European clubs, and Freddie said to me that if he could change one thing in his career, it would be he wouldn't go out on loan from Benfica and Portugal to these other smaller clubs where he sort of petered out. He would try and fight and stay at Benfica and earn more playing time after he'd had actually a decent first season there. That's, um, you know, is it is there, I don't know, sort of like how do I put it, like, is, is it possible, obviously, he could not have gotten to where he got to at such an early age unless he wasn't gifted. But is it possible, Grant, that... Um, that ultimately, like the this, like his skills weren't such that he would be like the next American Messi versus just not working hard. You know what I'm saying? Like, was the do you think now like was the evaluation off? Not to say that he he wasn't a uh, didn't have great skills, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like the evaluation for LeBron was such that. It seemed like everybody absolutely said, even when he was like 16, 17, I draft this guy number one. He's the best, he's the best 16 year old I've ever seen. So was the evaluation for a do off or do you really think it might've been, he got caught up in sort of the celebrity of this and it was just too much too soon for such a young guy? You know, I kind of, I tried to approach it with the same standard to the, that big LeBron story that I did with my first big Freddie stories, where you talk to people who are respected in the sport who are talent evaluators and really good at, at figuring this stuff out, but it's never a certainty. And I think there is a difference between LeBron was like 17, Freddie was 13. And so there's a yeah. lot that can happen between the ages of 13 and 17, even though the people I was interviewing in the soccer community in the US Soccer Federation were like, this kid Freddie Adu is the real thing. Like, like he, like yeah, he had teammates, including one Jamie Watson on this podcast, who who told me like, look, Freddie was the best fourteen year old soccer player anyone had ever seen, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they're lying. Like he he had it, 
but it's still one thing to be that good at 14 years old and playing against kids your age. And then if you start to play against 25 year olds and 30 year olds, veteran professionals, it can be a different type of situation. And Freddie's also playing a position of an attacking central midfielder or winger that is, you know, you need to, to kind of build a team around somebody like Freddie and you would better be really, really good. I had one U.S. coach tell me at one point that, you know, about Freddie, can you build a team around a C-list Lionel Messi? And that coach didn't think you could. What, Freddie is now 31? Yeah. Do I have the right age? Yeah. Okay. And can you, so for the listeners listening to this, what, what, where is he playing? Like, where did he just sign? Um, And can you give us just a sense of like, like the competitiveness of that league and and how whatever league he's going to sort of relates to the MLSs and the Premier Leagues and the La Ligas of the world. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I thought Freddie was done playing professionally because he played in over a dozen teams in in as many countries since 2004. And his last team that he played professionally for was in the second division in the U.S. in Las Vegas in 2018. Mm -hmm. And he got cut before the 2019 season. So at that point, and not to get signed in 2019 and to go through much of 2020 and not get signed, you know, he's gone nearly two years without playing professionally. And so he signs last month with a team in the third tier in Sweden. And this is by no means some like fancy soccer situation here and he's gonna go over there and do a couple of weeks of training here right uh in the next couple of weeks and then their season's on the mls calendar starting in the spring but he needs to show that he can get fit needs to show that he can still impact a game and this is a pretty humble situation here and so i'm looking at it more from a human story perspective of one of the big things i learned here is a lot of people would assume that freddie Adu is a sad story. And from everyone I talked to, including Freddie himself, he's not bitter. Like he's not, they don't think he's a sad story. And actually, I kind of agree with him. I mean, it, obviously there was so much potential there and you think about what he could have been. But in human terms, he still loves to play soccer. He's excited about going to play for this third tier team in Sweden. And if you talk to him, it's actually a little inspirational and that kind of made me feel good. Yeah, no, I think what he's doing now is actually really cool. Um, and incredibly, um, it is inspiring. Like he's really, he's really just sort of playing, it seems like for the sort of the love of the game and maybe just to have his own, letting him dictate how he wants to complete his soccer journey as opposed to elsewhere. Um, so I'm with you on that. Do you, um, did you have any sense, and maybe you asked Freddie this, like, is he financially well off? Was, was he, if nothing else, able to um, uh, get enough money when he was, um, you know, so in the public eye that he was able to, to bank that? Because obviously the, the, the um, you know, the multi-million, billion-dollar contracts for Barcelona, Real Madrid, et cetera, never happened. But, but he did, at least in some sense, Grant— um, 
was a very, very powerful marketing vehicle for a while. Do you know if he was able to at least benefit from that? I mean, he signed a Nike deal worth $1 million as a 13-year-old. So seven-figure deal. And with that, he was able to buy a house for his mom, uh, who had worked as a single mother, two jobs, sometimes three for her two sons. And she still lives in that house in Maryland that Freddie actually lives in too still. And there's a, a real pride on Freddie's part He's like, that is the best thing I've ever done in my life and always will be buying a house for my mom. So if you look at it in those terms, this is a pretty remarkable American dream story where this family from Ghana won the immigration lottery to come to the U.S. before anyone knew about Freddie playing soccer. Comes to the U.S. when he's eight and all of that happens then in the soccer space very quickly. And Freddie signs the Nike deal, signs a $2 million deal with US soccer or with MLS over four years. So money came in. That said, I won't give away too much, like the, the financial pressures are there still. And so that's a part of the current story that, that I get into in the podcast. And so I do know he feels good about the house that he, he bought for his mom and that she's still there and that she hasn't had to work a day in her life since he bought that for um, nine, you, you talked to him for 90 minutes, right? It's a 90-minute interview mm -hmm. with Freddie? Yeah. Okay. And one more interview potentially um, coming as he discusses what his, um, you know, what his sort of uh, his, his latest journey will be in terms of professionally, and that would be the last episode. Have you, you haven't had that second interview yet. Correct. We're going to wait until he gets back from Sweden where he's going for a couple of weeks and uh, get his sense of things and, and the Swedish team sense of like why they wanted to sign Freddie Adu because that, that too is interesting. There's sort of a history of some teams signing Freddie for publicity, less for the soccer. And so I'm curious to hear what the, the Swedes say about how that came together. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So here's the last one for me, Grant. And it's a bit of an introspection, obviously, uh, for yourself. I'm sure you've thought about this. So you you wrote two cover stories for Sports Illustrated with two very, very significant athletic figures. One of them, obviously, LeBron James, went on to be um, either the greatest or second greatest basketball player of all time, but but exceeded whatever I think the expectations were. Freddie Adu, obviously, athletically did not exceed those um, expectations. Where do you stand now as you look look back on this with some perspective on just the idea of placing those those two uh, kids on the cover of, at the time, a very powerful magazine that would bring them into people's homes? Like, do, do you, had your, what, how do I sort of ask this? Um, not that it was your decision per se, but, you know, how do you sort of evaluate the idea that like, should should people that age be put into that kind of spotlight, which the fact is our old employer did? 
I mean, I'm totally torn on this, and and I understand the reason for the question because when SI put LeBron James as a high school junior on the cover in 2002, on the one hand, I'm like pumping my fist because a writer's always excited to get a cover story. But on the other hand, I was asking at the time, are we ruining this kid's life? Because, I mean, you'd be lying if you said that you didn't think the act of putting somebody on the cover of Sports Illustrated, especially in those days, would have would be part become part of the story and change the way people perceive that person from that point forward. And it totally changed LeBron's life. And he and what I had to come to grips with was that could be a bad thing. That could also be a positive thing because I remember in my LeBron story, I was like, oh, maybe he'll sign a $20 million shoe deal. He ended up signing an $87 million shoe deal with Nike. And so there's some benefits that come with the publicity as well. And and yet with Freddie, I, I asked him, do I owe you an apology? And that was probably for me the most poignant part of our interview because... I, he, he said no, by the way, which was nice of him to say, but I, the older I've gotten, the fewer sort of prodigy stories I've written and the, the more I've thought about my role in this type of stuff and how it impacts things. And while on the one hand, part of becoming a superstar athlete is dealing with media pressure and the crush of media and every superstar has had to come through that at some point. But LeBron and Freddie had it more than most. And I'm tremendously impressed by everything LeBron has done to deal with it. And Freddie had a harder time with it. And while Freddie told me he didn't blame me for any of that stuff, he did say that it affected him and not necessarily in a totally positive way. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think people will look be uh, looking forward to listening to that sort of back and forth, because that's, I think, an important question for a journalist in your position to uh, to ask. Uh, the uh, the noted soccer journalist Grant Wall hosts football with Grant Wall. He also, and that is what we've been discussing on this podcast, is the narrator slash reporter for American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. That's a seven-part series on the American soccer player Freddie Adu, who... Um, was a uh, a massive comment uh, for those in the soccer community who remember and did not turn out to be um, the prodigy that people thought. Grant, where is uh, the best way or how is the best way to get this uh, podcast uh, if you want to listen to it? Anywhere you get your podcast. That's quite a, quite a sales pitch, Grant. <laughs> uh, anywhere you get your uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. All of them. And... Uh, and the Russell. And give Grant a five-star review and a nice comment. I mean, that's, uh, as we always say at the end of my podcast, the, the bosses do pay attention to that. All right, Grant, man, I, I know you did a lot of work on this. Um, and I think uh, I listened to the first one. It was really, really well done. Thanks. And, um, and I think a lot of people in the soccer community and beyond are going are gonna to find it really interesting. Thank you uh, for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Muffet McGraw and Grant Wall for interesting conversations. Uh, check out Grant's podcast if you can. Um, previous uh, episodes of this podcast, prior to this one, was um, James Andrew Miller on the ESPN layoffs uh, and what that means for ESPN heading forward. 
you're uh, interested in um, sort of the future of ESPN, I think the, well worth checking that one out. Before that, ESPN's Chris Fowler on calling college football this year amid COVID, and uh, Jordan Cornette and Shea Pepler Cornette, the first uh, married couple to uh, have an ESPN radio show together. And then the previous episode before that did a uh, an hour plus on sports viewership with three sports viewership experts in this country, Mike Mulvihill, Flora Kelly, and Austin Karp. And, um, and if you want to know why sports viewership is down, uh, we got into the weeds on that one. So that's, uh, I think, something you'll be interested in. Um, all the podcasts are available for you to uh, check out. Um, if you like this kind of stuff, please leave us a five-star review and, uh, and a comment. That's how uh, it continues. That's how Cadence 13 continues with me. Again, want to thank uh, Sean and Patrick for uh, their work. Thanks to Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, and John McDermott at Cadence 13. And, of course, thank you for listening. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.